Welcome or welcome back to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories. This week's guest, Rebecca Rush, is one of the most prolific adventure athletes out there. She is a seven-time world champion in multiple sports. She's won the Leadville 100 mountain bike race multiple times. She summited Mount Kilimanjaro by bike. She set course records. And her other background was in adventure racing. So she's been all over the world through jungles, deserts, mountains, doing week-long adventure races. And those are outlined in her book, Rush to Glory. That's right. Rebecca is also an author and event producer for an event that she calls Rebecca's Private Idaho. She's a motivational speaker. She's done a TED Talk. She's raised more than $100,000 for bike-related charities. Rebecca has done so much in her career, and she's a huge inspiration to everybody that follows her. In today's show, we cover a lot of different things. First and foremost, we talk about Blood Road, a documentary she did in conjunction with Red Bull that films her adventure riding the entire length of the Ho Chi Minh Trail in Vietnam. And she did that because she was searching for her father and where he was shot down in the Vietnam War. I highly recommend that you guys check out this documentary. And there's a lot more that goes into making a documentary besides just riding your bike. We talk about how her career has pivoted over the years. She's been a professional athlete for most of her life. So we talk about sponsorship and what makes a good partnership. We talk about core values. We talk about what it means to race and how that helps you in your life and how her career has led her to where she is now, where she's focused on these amazing mountain bike expeditions. And we actually get to watch them in documentaries. So that's pretty cool. We talk about risk-taking and facing the unknown. That's something that Rebecca is very familiar with. All of the major turning points in her career required her to face the unknown and to pivot and to try new things. So she's a huge resource and really, really knowledgeable in that subject. We talk about what it's like to be a female athlete and the tools that she's used in her career to help her be successful. I think you guys are going to really enjoy this podcast. I certainly enjoyed catching up with her. Here is Rebecca Rush. Hey, Rebecca Rush. Hi, how are you? Good. I'm so glad to finally see you. You've been a human pinball this year all over the place. I feel like a pinball. I'm a little bit beat up, but I'm starting to, I've been home a couple weeks now and I'm starting to recognize myself again. And it was a really crazy year with touring for the Blood Road film documentary and really rewarding, but I gave a lot of myself <laughs> this year. And so I'm going to, I'm going to stay home and recharge my batteries a little bit and, and get set up. So I'm pretty excited to be in Idaho right now. That's so cool. Yeah. Like Rest is so important. And one of my favorite episodes I recorded, it's with the book Peak Performance with the authors, Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus. And you might even know those guys, but it's all about how important rest is and how rest isn't just like resting from exercise. It's like resting in your life where you're not doing a billion things at once. So I've been trying to implement that, but it's hard to do. I learned a couple big lessons this year. One that, yeah, sleep and actually just brain rest is so essential just for me to be a nice person. I was didn't recognize myself sometimes this year. And that also how rejuvenating exercise is and my lack of exercise this year has really, it's taken a toll and like my neck hurts and I'm cranky and like all these things that like I've never experienced before. And I know it's because haven't been moving and haven't been sleeping as much. And so I'm going to change that for 2018. But yeah, wrapping the film tour is really exciting. And I mean, we won a ton of awards and really got to share the story with a lot of people. And that that was such a special gift to 
the most important thing I've done in my life than having the film and being able to have it expand beyond my ride and have it expand to other people was really powerful, a gift for me and also for a lot of veterans and students who never knew about the Vietnam War and all sorts of amazing gifts. So yeah, while it was really tiring, it really did. Um, I really grew as a human by taking my story out there and sharing it with so many other people. And it's still, you can get it free until the end of the year if this podcast runs on Red Bull TV. So if people haven't watched it over the holidays yet, it'll be on there afterwards as well. Oh, cool. I'll have to shuffle up the order and make sure it gets out because, yeah, I rented it off iTunes. I wanted to make it to one of your premieres, but I was so happy when I finally got to watch it because I know how important that film was for you. And then after getting to watch it myself, I was blown away. Like, number one, because I know you personally and seeing you having to be vulnerable on in front of a camera that would be really hard. And like the camera's in your face all the time, like at every moment, especially whenever you, I don't want to ruin the end for people, but like when you got to the place that you were looking for and like that moment was caught on camera. So like, what's that like when there's a camera right in front of you in some of your most private, vulnerable moments? You know, a real testament to the film crew is that I forgot they were there. Wow. Like I don't remember when, when I got to the tree and you know, uh, some of the really, really moving parts of the film, you know, it's one take. We're not redoing things because this was an actual story. And I don't remember where the film crew was standing. I don't remember them being there. There's lots of times where it was so important and I was so in my world. I mean, it's kind of like a bike race where you're blocking out all the peripheral noise. And so it's a tribute to them how dedicated they were to not affecting the story and letting it unfold naturally for me. And I mean, it was a really small crew and they were all on motorcycles and they were going through the expedition probably in a more challenging, difficult way than I was. You know, they're carrying 50 pounds of gear and on the trail with me. And but honestly, I didn't feel like I was making the film. They, they felt like they were they became teammates, you know, mm -hmm. um, and we really were doing this expedition together. And I think that shows in the film is that it wasn't like, Oh, fixing my hair. I forgot they were there. And they really did become really good friends by the end of it. And the hardest part, you're right, was being vulnerable and being myself. You know, I, people will ask, why did you have to ride 1,200 miles to go look for your dad? Why couldn't you just go to the crash coordinates, the map coordinates that you had? And the reason for me, it was, it was a way, one, to combine what I know and what I do and what I love with expedition and riding. But I also feel like I needed those hundreds of miles of sort of physical breakdown to allow myself to be open emotionally. And you know, like, on day four of a stage race, you're, you're responding to things differently than when you get on the start line, you're tough as nails and you've got your armor up. And, you know, obviously a month on the trail and brutal conditions and riding long distances every day, it really did strip away all that armor that we build as athletes and as people. And being vulnerable was the hardest part of the trip. But, you know, riding and, you know, having long days with Huan on the trail where I could just put my head down and hammer, like that was really my way to process and, you know, have a therapy session in a way to, totally. to do all the intense emotions. But so combining it with the ride was really special. And then being able to document it and share it was, you know, just really the icing on the cake this year. Yeah. You know, I think that your point about doing things that are challenging physically to, heighten our emotional experiences are really important because especially as female athletes, it's like you want people to take you seriously and you feel like you need to be tough all the time. And 
So like this comes into your life where I wasn't until I met my husband where I actually felt comfortable being vulnerable in front of another person. It's like, oh, I'm allowed to like be vulnerable and cry or like feel more emotions than I feel like maybe I should. And it was really cool to see that you out there, like you're so right. You have to be putting yourself in these situations where you have to figure out who you are and what you're about and the bike and in your life, especially with all the adventure racing you've done, it's a way to just see yourself, see a reflection of yourself over and over and see how you're choosing to grow from those experiences too. I think the vulnerability is something that people have really responded to because they can see themselves in it and they can see maybe their relationship with their family. And when I wrote my book, that's where I really learned. And once it was out there, the response that people got that I got was surprising in that, you know, yeah, they're impressed. Oh, you did this, you did that. But even more so people were really responded to, oh, you're scared sometimes, or you failed, or you didn't know what you were doing. I think people really appreciated knowing that I'm human. And that human factor and that human reaction is what people respond to even more than four level wins or this or that. Yeah, for sure. Like your, yeah, your book. So your, her book is Rush to Glory, if you guys haven't read it yet. And I highly recommend that you do. Because what I loved about it is when I met you, I knew Rebecca, the mountain biker. And now, like after reading that book, I got to know everything that you did before you were Rebecca, the mountain biker. And it was incredible. Like the crazy like kayaking trips in South America and like the jungles that you were going through in these adventure races. It's, it's insane. Thank you. I love that stuff. And I feel like my career is coming full circle now and being able to bring my cycling, racing and my adventure racing, you know, with navigation and expeditions are all kind of evolving now into like what I did on the Ho Chi Minh Trail for Blood Road and Kilimanjaro. And I'm really moving towards bike expeditions. And it, it does feel like Blood Road was is kind of the culmination of all the experiences I've built over my lifetime with navigation, logistics, all that kind of stuff, and then the bike. And so I feel like that, the gift, one of the gifts, and I feel like it's my dad, you know, brought me there and taught me that like the next evolution of my career is going to be these bike expeditions. And I'm actually super excited about that. And I feel like it was him teaching me and showing me that even though he's gone, he's, he's teaching me lessons. Yeah. So like, it's really interesting to see like the progression of professional athlete winning Leadville four times, like your multiple world champion and in, in more than one sport, like that's amazing too. And then seeing the racing kind of evolve into this expedition type of project thing. So like, it wasn't hard to make that choice because like a lot of times athletes say, well, I'm a racer. I need to be racing and you're still going to be racing, but changing what your focus is, is, was that a hard decision to make? I think it's the key to longevity as an athlete or in a career or ha long, you know, happiness, longevity is listening to kind of those messages that come to you and evolving. And people will be like, oh, you hit 24-hour racing right at its peak and adventure racing and then Leadville right when it was really good. And, and it wasn't that I had this strategic plan, you know, and now I'm into bikepacking and expedition riding that's getting really popular. It's more that I have really tried to listen to what fuels me, like what am I passionate about? And, you know, when I was young, it was, you know, rock climbing. And so I moved in a bar and so I think it's really important for anyone. And, and I can look back to all the changes in my career. There's been sort of, you know, many distinct transition periods. And most of them happen because 
either something really bad happened, like a friend of mine dying, adventure racing, losing a sponsorship, and then that evolved into bike racing. So they either happened that way with like a sort of phoenix rising from the ashes kind of thing, like something bad happens and you adapt to it. Or it's just been like this inkling, like, oh, I think I want to try Leadville. Maybe I'll try it. Or I wonder if I could ride my bike up Kilimanjaro. Hmm, I wonder. So I think it's important to always be curious and look for things that excite you because people ask me all the time, how do you choose your races? And it's like, well, I look at a map and where do I want to go? Like Mongolia or New Zealand or so you have to have and then, okay, find a race in that area. And okay, so I think the first most important thing, if you can and anyone really can, is to look for something that excites you and makes your hands a little sweaty. And that's how Blood Road and the Ho Chi Minh Trail happened. It was I wonder if I could find my dad. I wonder if anyone's ridden the Ho Chi Minh Trail and an idea of the expedition just sort of took shape over many years. I mean, I can look back at my career and I've actually just recently done this and kind of wrote down a few core values, which is kind of interesting. And I can look back at all those changes and be like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, okay." it did kind of fit in. I just wasn't able to articulate it. And so I did kind of some soul searching, obviously, over in Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia and then came home really wondering is my competitive spirit dead? Is this the end of my cycling career? Like what just happened to me? And it's taken me, it's been a few years since I've been back. It's taken me a while to process what the next evolution is. And that is going to be the bike expeditions. And it's also doing good. And, you know, realizing that standing on a podium as addictive and amazing as it is for me, it's actually even more exciting to share that and help somebody else get on a podium, like hosting Private Idaho or giving back in some way. Like coming back from Laos, one of the biggest discoveries is that there are still a lot of bombs and unexploded ordnance left in that country. And so I'm taking riders back to Laos now to fundraise to clean up the bombs in my dad's name and show them Laos. And we go back really soon in a few weeks. And so I'll I'll go back. I talked about the core values I've been able to articulate, which makes me really happy because it's like everyone's like, what are you doing with your life? I'm like, I don't know. Um, and I still don't know, but I have some guidelines I can follow now and I can look back at everything. And to me, risk equals reward. So something that makes your hands a little sweaty, a little scary, all the best things I've done have been a little bit risky. The second one is that passion equals payoff. And if I don't love it and I don't want to be doing it, then, you know, it's not going to work for me. And then the third one that's really evolved, you know, in the last few years is that the more that I give, the more I get back. And so that's been involvement with World Bicycle Relief or, you know, clearing up bombs in Laos or, you know, NICA, getting more kids riding. I mean, it just, it elevates the experience when it goes beyond just me. So that's what has been my recent evolution of, of soul searching and being able to figure out where I'm going. And, and now I can kind of look at that checklist. And if somebody says, do you want to go do this? Or somebody says, hey, Rebecca, you should start a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> like, does it check off those criteria? And if not, then I have the freedom to say no. Yeah, having that roadmap to know where to go next is so important. And I really appreciate that you shared what those core values were. Like, it's awesome to hear that. But something interesting that you mentioned about like all the different pivot points in your career, there's two things that I think that they are all laid out upon. And number one, you said something bad would happen. But a lot of times, like when something bad happens, people just give up. They say, oh, well, I'll just retire. But you yeah. don't do that. Like your curiosity that you mentioned, you were able to look and see, okay, well, this isn't 
the end of the road. This is like when you're navigating a maze and then you just come to like a dead end. You just backtrack a few steps and turn and keep going another direction. So being able to reinvent yourself takes a lot of courage. Like it's really inspiring to be able to watch that you've done that over the course of your career. And it's a great example for a lot of people to see that, hey, well, if so if something isn't working, that doesn't mean that you suck or that it you should give up or it's the end. It's maybe it's time to just turn around and reevaluate where you're at and move forward in a different way. And I think that that's for me as as a person and as an athlete and and everything that I'm doing, like watching you, you've been a role model for me. And it's it's been really cool to watch what you've been doing and how you've been evolving. And that it's, it is about so much more than just racing. Like racing is awesome. It's a good competition. It's fun. It teaches you who you are, like we were saying. But it's also a really great way to connect with people and to show them what it looks like to be a racer and like what your purpose is. And someone asked me the other day on, I just doing an Instagram live and they're like, what are your goals for 2018? And I started laughing because zero of my goals have to do with race results. <laughs> and people think if you're a professional athlete, that's what your goals are is like to be the fastest or to win or all those things. And I think that as you progress in your career, that starts to change. Like the things that you value and the things that, that excite you are more than just a race result. So I think that that's really interesting that you say that, yeah, like I like those things, but I want to be giving back to the world in a really big way. And you, and you have, and like the unexploded ordinances, I had no idea about those things. And now you're raising money for charities and people can be involved in this and you're bringing people in instead of excluding people. And I think that that is a huge, huge deal. Thank you. I mean, and the racing, don't get me wrong. It, they're all building blocks. And I'm, I, you know, I'm a racer at heart. I'm a competitive person and that will <laughs> never die. And, you know, people are like, oh, I don't race or I don't want to race. And what I missed this year from racing is it elevates you individually. Yes, you're lining up with hundreds or thousands of people and racing against them, but really you're racing yourself. And people would ask me that all the time. Oh, were you disappointed? You got second or this or that. And, and if I did better than I'd done before, then no, I'm not disappointed. And so the racing has one given me a platform to be able to do more, but it also really as an individual, it helps me grow. I mean, even if it's a local cross country ski race, I'm going to go out and try harder than I would by myself. And so for me, I still do need racing because I need to be held accountable. Otherwise I'm like, Oh, I don't feel like riding today. I don't feel like doing something hard. And and I'm kind of excited to get back to that because I, I missed it this year on the film tour, that kind of personal accountability of striving to be a little better every day. And so I, I will get back to racing and then I'll always race and won't retire because I do think it's an important way or a really good way, easy way for all of us to elevate our own performances and connect with people at the same time. Yeah, like when athletes retire, it seems like they retire. I understand some of the reasons they do because it's a it's a big ordeal in your life to take on a full plan for training. But also people retire sometimes because they can't handle not being the best anymore, like in terms of results. But you redefined what it means to you to have a successful race. And it's similar to me is I want to win, sure. But like I feel good and you feel good if we've gone out and we've grown as a person. And I think it's really important for people to realize that it's not just about your race result. It's not just about how fast you are. It's about the work you're doing internally. And that's why you should sign up for a race. Not so you can go just kick everybody's butt. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was on film tour this year. I was getting all these Strava notifications. Like, uh -oh. oh, I'm like, stop it. <laughs> I'm doing other things right now, but it is important to realize that all of our lives go in kind of peaks and valleys. And, you know, one person can't, 
put 100% attention into writing a book, doing a film tour, racing, being with your family, like something's got to give. And for me this year, the training was what had to give. But the cool thing, it's just like the seasons, like it's winter here now, come spring, I'll be like, I want to ride my mountain bike. But right now I want to go skiing. And I think those allowing those kind of seasons in your own life, as much of a struggle as they feel like when you're in the dark of winter personally, that you do come out and there is a spring and that, you know, honoring that kind of evolution seasonally and in your life is really important. You've been a professional athlete your whole life, and you have a really viable business model as an athlete. And what that means has changed over the years. Like before it used to be you, you get on a team and now it's more the solo athlete has a lot of benefits. So how have you made those choices in your business over the years? And what would you say to somebody who's looking to get sponsored or is looking to quit their job and become an adventurer? Because like, some companies come and go and some companies are with you from the beginning. Like, and it appears that Red Bull has been that for you. So like, how do you, I guess I'll narrow it down. Number one, how do you get started in that realm and how do you bring value to a sponsor? And number two, how do you know when it's time to move on? Well, number one, I never set out to be say, Oh, I'm going to be a professional athlete and I want to get sponsors. I mean, that's going at it from the wrong Avenue. Instead it was the passion equals payoff you know, risk equals reward. And I was like, I want to go rock climbing. How do I make that happen? Or I want to go adventure race. I got invited to go adventure racing. How do I make that happen? And so first and foremost, I was doing what I loved. The fact that I, you know, developed some skill at it and had some success. That's where the sponsorship starts to come. So whenever somebody asks me, oh, how do I get sponsorship? It's like, well, first, are you doing what you love? Would you do it anyway, even if you didn't get paid? which is what I did living out of my car and no health insurance because I wanted to go adventure racing and rock climbing. And so that's the first thing. Second, as it starts to develop, and I've done this my whole entire life with sponsors, is I look for relationships instead of a paycheck. And of course, you need a paycheck to make it happen, but I've never endorsed or, or been with somebody that I didn't believe in. So it has to then it has to start there. I mean, Red Bull started 17 years ago just getting some free product for our team. And that was it. And at the rock climbing gym was near their headquarters. And so I discovered Red Bull while I was living out of my car and doing these long distance rides to go rock climbing. And it was just coming out and I tried it and I was like, whoa, this keeps me awake while I'm driving. <laughs> and so then when I moved to Santa Monica, I found them and talked to them. And, and so it has to start there. And they have been my longest running sponsor. And the reason why is that it is a true partnership. Red Bull has never once said to me, you have to do this, or these are the races you need to do. They've only asked me, what do you want to do? What hasn't been done before? What do you think? And so they've really pushed me professionally to think outside the box and they've helped me evolve. And each time I've had this kind of transition, like when adventure racing died, I had a year left on a Red Bull contract and they're like, well, we're not going to take the money back. So find something to do for the year. And I had to call them in October and be like, I don't have a sport anymore. I don't have a team anymore. I don't have any other sponsors anymore. And they're like, well, find something to do. And that's where I found 24 hour bike racing. Cycling was my worst sport. I hated it, but <laughs> it was the longest thing I could find. I, I, you know, I was used to doing week long races. And so I'm like, okay, well, one day race that can be that hard, even if I have to run my bike the whole time. And so, you know, that was chosen just based on longevity. But that's the really cool thing about Red Bull is that instead of just a handout and, oh, here you go, tell us when you get a podium win and send your report, 
they're along the ride for the ride with me. And Blood Road is another example. And, you know, riding the Cocapelli Trail was another example of my first Red Bull project. And that's where I really doing that record solo record was where I really started to realize I don't need to race a bunch of people. I don't need to line up with a thousand other people at the same time. I am just as motivated to race myself, which was the Cocapelli one. And that was my first Red Bull project. And then Blood Road was really eye-opening too, because I didn't set out to make a film. You know, I set out to do this project and it was so big logistically and like border crossings and planning that I knew I needed help and they came on board to help me. And then it became a film. So they really are there to be part of the team and to push me to be better. I mean, it's kind of like you think about jobs that you have where you have a manager or a boss and a really good manager doesn't just tell their employees what to do. Oh, go do this, go do this, go do this and report back. A really good manager is going to teach you and bring you up and have you figure it out on your own. And then in the end, you're a better employee. And that's really how a great sponsorship or partnership is going to work. But the ones that your next question of when do you know it's over or when do you know it's time to move on is when your core values don't match anymore. And, you know, I've definitely had a long, you know, long term partners that it came to a point where I was just like trying to put a square peg in a round hole and like, well, they just don't understand me and they don't feel the same way I do or see the same values I do. So if I'm having to convince someone that I'm really amazing and every year have to be like, no, no, really, really. Um, I mean, obviously you have to explain your goals and your plans, but you know, if, if you're just not aligned anymore, then it's time to move on. And that was a big lesson for me. And it was a really hard one a few years ago, um, you know, changing bike brands from a long-term partner. And it really was just that we didn't fit anymore. And it was hard for me to accept that as a failure or having the confidence to walk away and be like, this doesn't feel right anymore. I need to move on. And it was a really big learning experience for me, but one of the best things I've done because it did, again, it forced me to think about what is my brand? What do I stand for? Is this working? It's not working. Okay. And it really did take my confidence to the next level. Actually being able to walk away was really important. Yeah, that's amazing. I love that. And I think that something else to point out is that your business model isn't just about sponsorships. Like you've written books, you do these amazing adventures, you do projects, documentaries, you have your own um, Rebecca's Private Idaho. Like I think you're probably still doing with SRAM, like the Gold Rush Tour. Like there's a lot of different things that you do. You're not just uh, an athlete with sponsors. Like you're killing it out there and you're making the world better. So like, how do you manage that? Because a lot of times people think, oh, you're, you're an athlete. You just get to like ride your bike or go on these cool trips, but really behind the scenes, there's a lot more going on. So how do you manage that? And how do you decide this idea I'm going to move forward with and this idea I'm not going to move forward with? Well, here's the deal. And you'll see a lot of female athletes are multitaskers and they have a, either, you know, a lot of pro road women have another full-time job and, or I was doing camps or clinics or whatever. One, out of passion because I wanted to, but number two, because there is still a big discrepancy in um, pay for female athletes versus male athletes. And what you're seeing now is female athletes are crushing it because 
we've been forced along the way to be the complete package, to write a blog, to do this, to do that. And I'm not saying there aren't male athletes out there doing it, but that's been the norm for most of us who've been athletes for a while. We've had to evolve with that and almost give a higher return to defend our space. And the tables are turning. It's really exciting to be kind of in the middle of this evolution. But honestly, a lot of that other stuff was because I had to do it. And it's turned out it's been hugely rewarding to get women into bikes and all that kind of stuff. But a lot of it was just purely financially motivated because I had to. And I'm glad it made me a more complete person. And it made a quote unquote retirement, you know, the fact that I have so many other things going on. It's like I didn't invest, you know, in my investment portfolio wasn't all in my performance as an athlete. It was in other things to try to one, protect my job. But now two, looking back, I'm like, God, I'm so glad I did all that stuff because I have other interests and other things. I'm not this one dimensional kind of uh, brand or person. And then what was the second question about how I decide how I decided which ones to do? Yeah, because like, I'm sure that you have a lot of different ideas. And uh, I guess you I guess you already answered this. You said, does it align with your core values? Like whenever you have a new project come in? Core values for sure. But then also it's like, like private Idaho came because people kept asking me every time I travel, Idaho, what? Iowa? Idaho, what's <laughs> Idaho? Idaho? And I'm like, no, this place is totally amazing. I love it. And so that one came out of wanting to support my community and show people where I live. So that's been really great. And, you know, I hit that right as gravel was taking off, which was amazing. Um, and then for next year, I'm going to launch camps in Idaho for, for twofold. One, to, to continue to share this amazing place with people, but also to bring more of my work home so that I can sleep in my own bed and travel, you know, a little bit less. So I choose the next kind of business venture based on, you know, if it's meeting my needs of wanting to be home, but also, yeah, financial security and parts of my business plan that I have control of, like private Idaho or camps or writing instead of relying on, you know, a sponsorship renewal every year. And you know, as well as I do, you could win world championships, you could do the best job in the world, and then still lose your job at the end of the year with that sponsor, because marketing budgets are the first thing to go. So there's never any job security. So that's why I'm building a lot of reason build the other parts of my business is so that um, I have longevity and I can keep doing this and not be reliant on if I lose a sponsor here or lose a sponsor there. Yeah, I can definitely relate with what you're saying. Yeah, <laughs> of your destiny instead of relying on, you know, a handout. Yes, I want to talk about the female athlete paradigm as well, because like a lot of times people ask me about it. And what I say to people is, I just ignore it. I just put my head down. I keep working and I try not to victimize thinking like, oh, well, it's easier for the guy. But if you stop and think about it, like a lot of times it is easier for them. So what would you say to people who feel discouraged by that, where they, they're afraid to even try because they think, oh, well, it's just going to be too hard as a female and there's no space for me? Well, I mean, then they're not the risk taker. They're not the right person for the job. Um, and absolutely, I don't think of myself as a female athlete. I think of myself as an athlete. And the job I do is the job I do. The same in the fire department is the job requirement is the same. And so I don't think, oh, well, I'm great for a female athlete. I've had people say that, oh, well, you did really well at Leadville for a girl, you know, and it's... <laughs> You know, I let it, I, you know, for years I've let it roll off, but we're in this, this, we're in this 
really exciting time of change where a lot of the bad behaviors being called out. And even if it's just a little comment like fast for a girl, that's gender bias. And so I have started to speak out a little more, not as a victim, because I'm really glad I'm a woman. And I feel like, you know, I love my career. But I also feel like, yeah, we need more opportunities for women and girls in the bike industry, in sports industry, and we need to not put them in a stereotype or, you know, oh, she's a girl, she might not know about bike mechanics, you know, and we all do it. I, you know, me, my, everybody does it, you know, we have our gender biases. And so my response to that has just been talking about it more. And a lot of people are talking about it more. And it's really exciting, I think. But yeah, just like you, it's like, I'll just work harder. Yeah, I'm the only female race director with a huge gravel event. Yeah, I'm the only female doing this or that or that. And that's fine. And that's great. And if that gives somebody an example, you know, another young girl, an example that she can do it, then I think that that's really important is just leading by example. Yeah, I love that. And lifting people up around you just by showing that you can do it and that if you work hard, great things happen. It's true. And I also think there's a lot of studies that adversity is actually breeds success. And so it's almost like the harder that we may have had it as, you know, being sort of women on the cutting edge of rock climbing was a sport I got into when there weren't any girls doing it, you know, firefighting, adventure racing, and sort of being those pioneers. But I think that adversity and having to work harder actually made me stronger. And there's a lot of studies of, you know, people with dyslexia who become brilliant, you know, scholars because they had to work harder at reading or so there are a lot of, of examples that that adversity does breed success. It's not that it's great when you're in that adversity, um, but it really does, you know, when you emerge from the end of it, make you stronger. So yeah, speaking of adversity and speaking of the fact that a lot of times you are the first person to do something, like it's not always as easy as it looks. And there's a lot of unknowns involved and like your Vietnam project and, and the Ho Chi Minh Trail was one of them. Writing a book was a, a huge unknown for you. So what, do, what would you say about how to remain calm or how to stay grounded in situations where you're going in, your palms are sweaty, you don't know what's going to happen, there's a lot on the line, you could fail, like how do you remain calm and focused instead of getting freaked out, chaotic and out of control? I'm the most freaked out and chaotic and out of control when I'm not prepared. And so I like to control the controllable. So like going into an expedition like Blood Road, the Ho Chi Minh Trail, I didn't know my riding partner. I didn't know the terrain. I didn't know what I was going to find out there. But what I did know is that my bike was dialed and my nutrition was dialed and my navigation and my Garmin. And I knew that I could go for a month, you know, many hours a day. And so I had confidence in the things that I could control. And that doesn't mean I wasn't nervous and just like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? But at least I knew I wouldn't be lost. I'd be fed, I, you know, that, that I would take care of the things I could take care of. And I think that that's really important. And there's a difference between standing on the start line at Leadville and feeling kind of a heightened awareness and kind of this racing heart rate. And that's excitement. That's not necessarily nerves. And I think a lot of people put that 
in the wrong category. And if you're not heightened and aware and hand sweating, then do you really want to be there? You know, if you're, if you're just there and that's part of the reason why I change it up a lot and, you know, I've been to Leadville seven times and it's an amazing event, but I probably won't go back because I've done it. I know it. I know the kind of time I can put out there and I want to move on to something that does make my hands sweat. And the last couple of years there, I wasn't nervous on the start line and was sort of like, okay, Maybe I should do something else. And I thrive on that. Some people thrive on really knowing what they're, you know, exactly like people who swim or run track. They want to know exactly the amount of time around the track. And that's just, you know, my personality is a little more um, wanting to try something new. And that's been even since I was a kid. It's like, what's around the next corner? What's on the next block that, you know, I haven't seen yet. And I still have that kind of exploratory childlike behavior of wanting to go do those things. But I mean, I will tell you, you talked about the book. That's the hardest thing I've ever done because I'm trained that if you work harder, you put in more time, you know, as an athlete, if you put in the work, it pays off. It's a very simple formula and you get, you know, your power meter tells you if you're progressing, you know, your speed, all those things. And it's a very clear, linear equation. Doing anything creative like writing is not a linear equation and you can try harder and nothing happens. And I distinctly remember sitting at this desk and just like beating myself up, just like this sucks. I can't think I can't. And then I go outside and this is where my dogs are my saviors. I go outside and take them for a walk cause they were bugging me. And suddenly outside, you know, my brain and, and creativity would open up, but it was a very different learning process for me for a creative process because it just doesn't work the same way as a physical process. And that was one of the hardest things. And you don't get feedback. You don't get a power meter showing you, yeah, your writing's pretty good. Good job. <laughs> it's a little better today. Good job. Like you, you just put it out there and you never actually get that feedback. And so for me, that is really challenging and brings in a lot of self-doubt and the film editing and that stuff was that way too. And so those are really growth parts that have happened in the sort of latter part of my career more, more recently of like figuring out how to tell a story. And it's very hard and very vulnerable to put yourself out there. Yeah, I like what you said about you just try and sit at your desk and you say, OK, now I'm going to write something good. And it does like <laughs> I've tried that, too. Like I'll have a deadline for a writing project and I'll sit down the day before and be like, I'm just going to knock this out today. And then it's so painful because you can't actually sit there and just force it to come out. Like, like I, my background's in engineering. You do a math problem, you sit down and you do the problem. But with writing, you're, you're right. There needs to be a mental space that you're in where you're actually ready to put this out on paper. And if you're not ready, it's not going to come out very good. Yeah, I started carrying, like along the Ho Chi Minh Trail, I carried a voice recorder while I was riding that was part of the, the creative director, Nicholas Shrunk. He's like, I want you to journal every day and I want you to talk into this voice recorder. Because there were lots of times the film crew wasn't there. And so I'd just talk. I'd be on the trail, like talking to myself. And it was really great. And I, I've started to use that process for my other writing now is even on my phone, like if I'm out running or whatever, I'll take a voice memo because I feel like there's a mind expansion that happens when blood flow goes to your body, it goes to your brain. And, and a lot of times I'll get my best ideas out on the trail and I don't want to forget them. So I've started uh, recording them out there. That's I'm exactly the same way. Like I literally stop on a bike ride all the time and I'm like putting it in my phone or I'm trying to get Siri to just like come up and I'm trying to tell Siri so I don't have to stop 
And then it gets to a point where it's like, I can't keep stopping on my ride. I'm stopping way too much to, to record all these ideas. But I think it's a really interesting point to make that you said with your riding, when you got stuck, you'd go outside or you get your best ideas on a bike when you're outside. So I think that's also because we're not distracted by a billion different things. Like you're not on a device necessarily unless you're stopping to put it in your device. So you're allowing your brain to actually have the room to dance around and mold and shape into these new ideas. Yeah, I think distraction is a big issue with um, our society right now. And it's why what I really missed this year being on the film tour was the space because I didn't ride as much. It wasn't outside as much. I didn't have that empty space without distraction. It was still going here, going there. And even if I was exercising, it was like in a gym somewhere or fitting in a half hour run. And I just didn't have the open space to allow creativity and mental health and all sorts of things to happen. So Lack of distractions are a really good thing. <laughs> yeah, so digging into the film a little bit more, like we've been we've been kind of dancing around it, but we haven't dug in a lot into it. So I want to talk about first uh, your partner and how did you choose her and like what was that like? Because you didn't really know her that well and now suddenly you're taking on this huge adventure with her. Yeah, so Huen is a Vietnamese. She's a Vietnamese mountain bike racer, the most decorated racer in Southeast Asia. She won Southeast Asia games a bunch of times. So really, when we talked about the film, the creative director, Nicholas Schrunk, and, and I agree, thought it would be really interesting for me to ride with somebody from that area. But the experienced expedition person in me, you know, if this hadn't been a collaborative process, if it just been me doing the ride, I would have chosen, yeah, someone like you or my husband or somebody that I know um, that I had experience with, that we speak the same language. And you know, I would have chosen an expedition partner, totally different from Huen. But because we were, you know, doing the film, we really like just did research and interviews and found her online. And the creative team chose her. I didn't really have any part of that decision. And which, yeah, it was terrifying. And I didn't meet, (laughs) I didn't meet her or talk to her until in the film, the actual meeting, going to her house, meeting her father. That was the first time I met her. Wow. And the reason they kept all that from me is like I talked about before, they wanted my authentic reactions. And that was definitely my authentic reaction of like, okay, who is this girl? She doesn't really speak English that well. What is she going to be able to do? Is she going to be able to keep up? And it's one of the parts that I was most nervous about in the expedition. But like I talked about, you know, the what I could control, you know, I did. And so I just was like, well, if she can't do it, if it doesn't work out, I'm still going to do the ride, you know, hands down. And my husband was there with me as support. I'm like, Greg can just jump in. So I had a backup plan, you know, if it just totally didn't work out. But honestly, she really became one of the most amazing parts of the experience. And she really surprised me physically. I mean, her races were like an hour and a half long and she'd been retired for 10 years. She'd never set up a tent. She'd never use a camelback. She'd never use a Garmin. She, I mean, she had never gone in So yeah, I'm learning all this stuff going, oh my gosh, okay, I'm guiding someone, okay. But, and then I was, and I was teaching her along the way of of nutrition and, but she was very open and very receptive and she was really supportive of my mission. And really what I was teaching her physically, she was, I mean, she's more developed than I am emotionally. And I think she really 
did help me experience and let go and, and really kind of take all the emotional gifts that were there. And I think the fact that we didn't speak the same language, you know, she spoke a little English, but it causes, it made us communicate in a deeper way. And, you know, there was a lot of unspoken nonverbal communication and it was really special. And, you know, we're sisters now we're bonded in this way that you know, we can't even articulate how we feel about each other. But I'm going to see her in a few weeks. She's coming to Laos to ride on the guided trip with me. And that'll be my first time riding with her since the film. And what's been really exciting for her is she's gotten back into riding now and she's teaching young students to ride and wanting to get involved in the bike industry. And she's getting involved in the mine cleanup, the unexploded ordinance in Vietnam. So it was a gift of a trip for her too. I think it, it expanded both of us. But, but yeah, going into an expedition, the biggest thing in my life with a total stranger you know I I was sure it wasn't going to work out and that I would just like be riding by myself and uh, she really surprised me every day she just kept coming back and really elevated her level and she was a good choice wow that's amazing I I <laughs> I personally would be really stressed out about that as well. Like, oh my gosh, I've never even met this person before. They've never done anything like this. Like, that's amazing that you were able to handle that in such a graceful way because it, that is a, a tough thing. And then I'm so glad that it ended up working out. And she was like tough, like watching you guys go through the cave in the dark that lasted forever. And it just kept going. Like that was, I felt like the film made it look like that was a, a really, really important moment for you guys. Yeah, it, I mean, the riding, the physical was really tough, but she trusted me. You know, I was looking out for her. We definitely, you know, and part of what was so stressful about that cave scene is that, you know, I'm sitting here evaluating, okay, if we're in here too long and our, our lights run out and we're here totally in the dark and how am I going to take care of Huan? I mean, I felt a responsibility to take care of her for sure. And, and she really did rise to the occasion. And yeah, it was super stressful, physically, the most demanding thing I've ever done, the longest ride, the biggest expedition. But honestly, for me, the, the physical journey, I mean, that's what I'm trained for. I'm used to suffering and going long hours. I'm not used to just ripping my heart open and sort of being very vulnerable. And, and she was really supportive of that too. I mean, I, I wouldn't say I handled it as gracefully as, as I could. There's definitely things on the cutting room floor of the film where I'm just like losing it or, you know, Huen and I had a few arguments on the trail and, and which is to be expected. The director and I definitely butted heads a few times, but I think the most important things are really hard and it never goes perfectly smooth. And in the end, we ended up with a really beautiful, amazing journey, but um, it was not without struggles at all. <laughs> it was certainly a big struggle. Yeah. But that's like anything. And see back now and accept that, yeah, that was really hard. Yeah. And like you mentioned, a lot of the expeditions you've done, you like they were they're a film, but not at the level of this. And without uh, you were picking partners for the expedition, that would be good expedition partners. Not to say that she wasn't. She was a great expedition partner in the end. But expeditions are infinitely harder whenever you have all of those variables on top of the fact that you're just trying to get from point A to point B. And then you have all these other things that you're trying to manage on top of that. Yeah, it definitely pushed me way beyond anything I've ever done. But it also, if I had done the expedition in my style, you know, the Rebecca racer, control everything, go as fast as you can, I would have missed so many things along the way. And I would have missed, you know, the learning experience and, and taking the blinders off, um, you know, having to wait for Huen or the film crew allowed me the time to write in the journal, to talk in the voice recorder, to interact with the locals and to just really slow down. Awesome. Well, I re highly recommend everybody watches Blood Road. It's amazing. You don't want to miss it. 
Um, just to wrap it up, I want to talk about Greg. I want to talk about like you got married recently in the last couple of years and just having that partner there, that rock and someone that understands you, like, what has that been like for you? And how has that helped you? We met on a bike ride probably 12 years ago. So we've been married a couple of years, but we've been together a long time. And he's the one who helped get me involved with 24 hour mountain bike racing. He's been my crew. He's also a 24 hour single speed world champion. So we've been able to go on this bike journey together and, he's very different than I am in that he's, he's the strong, silent type. And while I'm kind of can be all over the place or, you know, very emotional or, or he really does ground me and level me. I mean, we're the same, but we're very different in the way that we handle things. And so he's really taught me patience. Absolutely. And he's taught me a lot about how to ride a bicycle. He's way better than I am. So I've learned a lot from him, but and, you know, now we have a house together and we have dogs and it really is special to be able to go on this journey with somebody else. He, he went to Laos with me in Blood Road for the film. And, and that was where I put my foot down with the creative directors. Like, I'll ride with another teammate. I'll do whatever you want, but I'm not going if Greg is not coming on the trip as my support crew. And yeah, I need him actually, which is kind of crazy for someone as independent as me to, you know, say I need somebody, but he definitely levels me. And and I think that's, you know, we all kind of need that, whether it's your buddies, your riding buddies who offer a little bit of a different perspective on things or your husband or your partner. I think it's important. We don't, we can't go through this world alone, whether, and maybe it's your dog um, (laughs) that is your emotional support. I know mine are, but it's so important, I think, for me to have somebody to tell me, hey, pull your head out of your ass or, oh, you're (laughs) Or you're doing a good job, even if you think you are, because we're not the best judge of our own character and we're not the best medicine for ourselves sometimes. And we need somebody else to interject there. Yeah. And sometimes it's hard to believe your partner when you're like, I'm not doing a good job. Like everything sucks. Like I'm sucking. And they're like, no, you're doing really well. Like it's, it's, it's look at the big picture. Sometimes it's hard to believe them. It's so true. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I love all the daily diesel photos that you post on Instagram of your dog. It's so fun to watch. Well, here, I mean, they are therapy. So I have this quote that I, um, I looked up for that I really like. And it says, man, unlike animals, has never learned that the sole purpose of life is to enjoy it. Yeah. And that's Samuel Butler. And so my dogs are uh, my mentors. They wake up happy every day. They eat well. They sleep well. They want to run around outside. Um, and they really just are joyful. And, you know, kind of whenever I'm feeling like, feeling that. And then I go out on a run with them and they're just running around, jumping and playing. It's like, yeah, that's what life is about. We're, we're supposed to play and have fun every single day. So yeah, they're my, my inspiration. <laughs> yeah. Like Dan Butner just put out a book, the blue zones of happiness. And two out of the three main takeaways in that book were, were two things we talked about. One was you have to sleep more than seven and a half hours a night to feel like happy and good. And number two was have a dog. And like, I've never had a dog and I really want one, but I'm, I'm never here. So it's like, and my husband travels a lot too. So it's like, well, how do I have a dog? But I'm, I love what you just said about that. (laughs) Yeah. Everybody should wag their tail a little bit every day. Yeah. Wag, (laughs) wag more bark less is that bumper sticker. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Rebecca, for, for coming on the show and hopefully we will see you soon. On a bike, Sonia, I hope. Yes. Yes. Yeah, actually, I've been thinking like, I just want to go ride with Rebecca because a lot of the times we see each other, it's like at an event or at a race. And I just want to go ride. I'll have to come visit in Idaho. Let's do it. <laughs> awesome. So where where's the best place that people want to connect with you? 
they, my, all my social tags and my website are my name, Rebecca Rush, R-U-S-C-H. And um, bloodroadfilm.com is where you can see the film. And then I'm also on my website, you know, if you need holiday gifts or anything, I have bracelets that I'm selling that are made from bomb scrap that's cleared in Laos, made by Lao artisans. And the money from the bomb bracelets goes back to clean up more unexploded ordnance. So that's if anybody's awesome. looking for a nice little bracelet gift. Uh, and I thought of one last question. Your nickname is the Queen of Pain. Uh, <laughs> Can you tell people about this, please? <laughs> so that was given to me. Most nicknames, you don't choose your nickname. They're given to you, and you just kind of take them <laughs> them. But um, that was given to me in the adventure racing days, kind of early 2000. And really, I think it was more for the fact that I didn't quit and, you know, could suffer a lot. But I actually really feel like it's more like the, the queen of perseverance. And it's not that I like pain or I thrive on it, but I do feel when we get out of our comfort zones and kind of the best rewards I've had have been the ones that have involved a little bit of pain and suffering. And then kind of on the other side of it, you come out a bigger person. So, so yeah, I'm in the queen of pain, but you don't need to be afraid of me. I've also had people say, Oh, you're way nicer than I thought. you Oh would my be. gosh. <laughs> Too funny. I might hurt you a little bit if you come to camp or private Idaho. That's right. There might be some pain involved, but it would be your own choice. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Rebecca. It was really fun to reconnect with you and congratulations on everything that you've achieved in the last year and in your entire career. Thanks, Sonia. You too. Yeah, thanks. I always love chatting with Rebecca because at first she was somebody that I just looked up to and that I didn't really know. And over the years, I've gotten to know Rebecca personally. And it's just really great to have a role model like her out there who is making such a positive change in the world and who is always evolving. I think that for all of us, knowing that change is inevitable and embracing change and embracing creativity is the way to go. As Rebecca mentioned, Blood Road is available to watch for free on Red Bull TV. It's redbull.tv or click the link in the show notes until the end of the year. I think the show is coming out around December 26th. So you still have a few more days to watch it for free. And if you want to participate more in Rebecca's journey and Rebecca's quest in Vietnam, go to her website. She does these retreats in Vietnam and she also is selling some products that will help fund a charity to remove unexploded ordinance in Vietnam. I hope your holidays are going well. I am heading to New Mexico pretty soon. That is where I grew up. It's where my parents live. It is where I learned to mountain bike in the foothills. And I always love revisiting that space because that is where this adventure started. And it's always fun to look back and see all the dots connecting to lead you to where they are today. Like that Steve Jobs quote about how you can never connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. And I think that it's important to take the time to reflect upon where you are in your life and how you've gotten there and also to think about where you want to go and I always use this time of year to do that. Going mountain biking in the foothills is a really special experience now because my dad just started mountain biking a couple of years ago and it's really fun to watch his progression and to be able to share that with him. In many, many years past, I wouldn't be able to go on rides with my dad because he didn't mountain bike. He was a hiker and he's always been in shape, but he wasn't a mountain biker. And now he's mountain biking more and more and it's really fun to see his progression. And it's a great example to show that you can never be too old to start mountain biking. I think he started at age 62 or 63. He started mountain biking at that age. So when people say, oh, I'm too old, for that, I say, whatever, you guys are wrong. 
Thanks so much, everybody, for listening to the show. If you want to support my work, there's a few ways you can do it. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe on all the different outlets where my podcast is available, including Spotify. Or if you want to contribute to the show financially, you can go on Patreon. Patreon's a crowdfunding website where you can help contribute any dollar amount to the show. Some people are putting in four bucks a month. Some people are putting in 10 bucks a month. And there's the option to do any more. The sky is the limit. But seriously, guys, thank you so much for listening to the show week after week. I really appreciate it. And if you have any guests that you would like to hear in particular, let me know and I will reach out to them and see if they'd like to come on the show. Wishing you all the best success in your training and your adventures. And we'll see you back here next week. 